who is God to you? God for me is everything. It's my life because my life without God is nothing. God is my Lord and Savior, my Father. You add God to the equation, everything's better. I mean, to me, I, I don't think that there is necessarily a God. I think that having an invisible guy watch everything I do isn't uh, something I personally believe in. Para mí, Dios es la persona la cual tú no puedes ver, pero en la cual todos confiamos. Aclamamos a Dios cuando tenemos problemas. God to me is really no one, to be honest. So uh, distant, you know, not communicative, no empathy. God is my father. Somebody I pray to, talk to every day. God is a being greater than myself and greater than anybody else. God is people I meet and the experiences I have. I'm not really religious at all, so probably nothing. I don't believe in God. I don't believe it's intelligently possible that there was a God. He's there when I need help. He's there when I don't need help. He's just someone I want to talk to all the time. God is kind of like a mentor, and you should go to him for some faith. And, you know, I know when I was so anxious about a new job opportunity, I was like, God, please let me get it. And I did. So, you know, it's just, you know, it's nice to have that, I guess, overseeing power, we'll call it. Um, but I feel like it's just a nice way to put your faith somewhere. And mysterious. I will definitely say mysterious. Um, quiet, but he works good in that way. And honestly, I'd say good, because, you know, even... I, I completely believe that um, everything happens for a reason, every single thing, and God puts you through hell for reasons, and uh, I can't seem to learn this lesson that keeps coming back to me, and it's him yelling at me saying, learn your friggin' lesson, so, yeah, that's what I believe. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge. My name's Aaron. I'm one of our pastors here, and there's a lot of places you can engage with us from, and wherever you're engaging with us from, we're glad that you're here. I normally am in Henrietta, so I always say hello to my Henrietta people. What is up? I love you guys, and I love that I get to just hear right back from you every time I say that. It just warms my soul. But, um, okay, so as I was preparing for this talk, we're starting off God Is, I was thinking through it, and it reminded me of this time in my life. Uh, if it was a few years ago. It was around Christmas time in that in-between where you're starting to get Christmas cards, but you haven't gotten any gifts yet. It's kind of like in that era. It's anticipating, you know, Christmas coming. And I went out on the front porch one day, and I saw a package there. Really cool. That's exciting. It's not Amazon, um, but it's like handwritten. It's addressed to me. I'm like, oh, this is cool. So I opened it up, and inside I found a tactical flashlight you know those like really cool small compact ones with like a million candle power made of like manly looking metal? It's like, yeah. And also some dress socks. So, you know, why not? I thought that's cool. And so I, I was like, hey, Lauren, my wife, I was like, check this out. Like, I got this package. It's cool with some dress socks and a flashlight. And she's like, oh, awesome. Who's it from? I, I don't know. I went back and looked. There was no card in the box. Uh, there was no, you know, like return address. And so somewhere in the next couple moments, this went from being like an exciting thing um, to turning into a little bit of a panic moment where I started to think about like, what kind of a message would a serial killer attempt to deliver <laughs> via flashlight and dress socks? And uh, I kind of freaked out a little bit, I won't lie. And then I ended up checking my Facebook messages a couple days later and I turns out my aunt had been just super sweet, sent me a gift, and so I could go back to being excited about the items in the package. But for a hot minute there, I was like checking over my shoulder. I'm like, when I'm going to take a shower, I'm like whipping open the curtain real quick, make sure there's not like a dude standing there with more socks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was, it got weird. Um, 
But why in the world was I thinking of that story of all stories in this? Well, it's because I was thinking about this idea that sometimes where something comes from is as important as what it is. Where it comes from is as important as what it is. And again, I was really excited about this gift at first, what it was. I was excited about it. And then it got, once I realized, I don't know where it comes from, it got super weird. And I start, you know, like dusting them for fingerprints and checking for anthrax, right? So that didn't really happen. Some of you are believing that. That was a joke. Um, But where something comes from matters. And I don't think it's true just of packages you find on your front porch. It's also true of things like food, right? Where it comes from matters. Don't eat food you find in the parking lot. That's not a good idea. We should make sure we know where it comes from. Or quotations, like if you're writing a paper and you want to quote somebody, um, you can't just say like, no, I got it from Wikipedia somewhere, right? You got to cite your sources. You got to know where your research came from. But I think this is not just true in these areas, it's also true in terms of our view of God. And so today we're going to be talking about where we got the view of God that we currently have, because where we got it matters. And I want to show you why. So let's jump in, let's do this. Everybody, are we excited? Are we going to do this? Henrietta in particular, I need to hear from you. Thank you, person who is now named Henrietta. Okay. While attending our Rochester campus, I like it. Um, All right, so here we go. Let's jump in. The bottom line for this series throughout all of it is simply going to be whether or not you follow God depends on who you believe God is. Whether or not you follow God depends on who you believe God is. Do you think that he is good? Do you think that he's angry? Do you think that he's made up? All of these things are things that we think God is, and there are also a bunch of things that we think God isn't, right? And kind of everything that we think God is and that he isn't, that is all super important. And I'm going to use a made-up term to kind of describe everything you think about God. And that term is going to be a God view, okay? Your God view. Whatever you're picturing when someone says the word God, that is your God view. It's how you view him. I know it's lame. I know it's made up. But roll with me because... You, sh- you just should, okay? God view. So your God view might be that there is no God. That's fine. That's still a God view, okay? It's a view of who he is. And this series is designed to describe an accurate view of God. So we're going to be finishing the sentence, God is blank, with various attributes of God, and then describing some of the struggles or concerns that come alongside him being whatever it is that we describe him to be. So that's what, that's what this series is going to be all about. But everything I just said about who God is, that is not what we're going to be doing today. That is what the rest of the series is going to do. What I'm trying to do instead is do what we talked about at the beginning. Remember the creepy package thing. Where something comes from is as important as what it is. And today, we're not even going to get to who God is. We're going to be focusing on where your God view came from. How does a person even develop a God view in the first place? And we're going to kind of deconstruct that process a little bit. Because most of us, we have never intentionally stopped and thought about, like, how did I get to this place in my life where I have this particular set of beliefs about God? We've never done that. We've never slowed down. Most of us arrive into our teens or our 20s or young adulthood and we with a view of God that we think just kind of happened and we just carry it throughout of our life, throughout all of our life. And in the end, honestly, it kind of resembles like a paper mache art project where we've just kind of like slapped it together and there's like some ragged edges and like some of the glue is still wet in spots. And we've never actually stopped to interrogate the process that has produced what is a mountain of evidence and beliefs and assumptions. So the question is, what is the correct 
process for developing a God view? How are we supposed to do this? And it's that question that we're going to spend our time exploring for this morning. And I'm going to give you precisely zero answers about who God is. In fact, please don't be too shocked by this and don't write too many hate emails, but we aren't really even going to look at our Bibles this morning. And I get that that sounds weird, and in fact, it should sound weird. You know, when you gather a bunch of Christians together who believe that the Bible came from God, you can reasonably expect that we're going to talk about what the Bible says when we gather together. That is a good, right expectation. We get that every single week from Drew. I'm so thankful for his teaching in that way. But my purpose in kicking off this series is not to provide you with a fill-in-the-blank for God is blank. That's not my purpose this morning. My goal is to dig through the unconscious and mostly unintentional process that everyone goes through where we piece together our God view. And so by the end of today, I'm hoping for two things from every person. First of all, um, that you challenge some of the assumptions that you might be carrying about God. And then second of all, that you are hungry to come back next week and get the process started. Because this is really just an introduction for the next month of teaching here at our church. So, now for real, let's jump in. Let's do this. Let's see if we can trace back where we got the view of God that we currently hold. And I'm going to suggest that there are four very common but very bad sources of information when it comes to a God view. And yet we find ourselves going back to them over and over and over again. Let me give you those four bad sources of a God view. The first one is our circumstances, our circumstances. And you might say, no, I don't go to my circumstances to figure out who God is. And I would say, uh, yeah, you do. <laughs> because all of us do this, okay? Thank you. Somebody thought that was funny, which I appreciate. That's good. Okay. Um, I would say, yeah, you do, because everybody does this. In fact, this is probably the most common place that most of us go, is our experiences. When we don't get that promotion, we're super bummed. And what does that result in? Well, that results in us saying, well, I don't know, maybe God's a jerk and maybe I don't want to follow him anymore. Or when a loved one passes away, we think like, well, if this is how God's going to play it, I'm not sure I can trust him. Or when a good time comes, this is, this is so classic, when a good time comes and we actually do that, get that promotion, we're all over Instagram like, I'm too blessed to be stressed. God is good all the time, Right? What are we doing when we're doing that? Well, what we're doing is we're looking at our circumstances as if they were a textbook, and we're just reading them and saying, maybe this is what God is like. But that is not what our circumstances are supposed to be. I'm so guilty of this. Family, this is a terrible place to go to build a God view. We've got to stop this. Another place that we often run is people's opinions. People's opinions. This is, a, this is big. We've all got that buddy that kind of seems to have it all together, and so we kind of go to them for spiritual advice. Or maybe it's your pastor, or maybe it was your sister growing up, or whatever. We piece together our view of God from the opinions of the people that we trust. And obviously, this can be a good thing. If you're, you know, God, I think he does use people from time to time to kind of help us understand who he is. So I'm not saying it's all bad, but at the same time, if you are dealing with something that is literally life and death, I think, I think your view of God is literally life and death. Do we typically get that important of information secondhand? No, we don't, right? It's like growing up, my brother, every once in a while, he would do stuff this, like this to me. He'd be like, oh, hey, I was talking to mom. Um, she said you have to uh, clean every bathroom in the house and you're only allowed to use a toothbrush. I'm like, okay, you know? Or like, I mean, what, what do you think my reaction would be in this moment? I'd be like, you know what? I bet he's right. That seems like a reasonable way for me to spend my entire Saturday. Like, no, I'm like, I'm going to mom, you liar. Like, I don't believe you. And I was the youngest, so I got away with it, and it's fine. But 
That's what happens. When it comes to important stuff, look, we're going directly to the source. And yet when it comes to our view of God, who claims, by the way, to be able to control your eternity, we're going on somebody else's opinion. We're taking their word for it. I mean, are we serious? We, why are we going to people's opinions? We need to be doing some double checking here. Another terrible source is half-truths, half-truths. This is where we believe something about God that ultimately is true, but we don't know enough about how that aspect of God's character works together with his other characteristics. And so the somewhat simplistic truth that we know becomes a frustration or maybe even a point of confusion. Like, for instance, the idea that, the, that our God is good, that idea. Somewhere along the line, people come to the conclusion that God is good, and that's good. But then when things don't go so good, which they rarely do, we begin to wonder, how could a good God allow bad things? And honestly, that is a really good question. In fact, it's one that's perfectly valid. We're going to spend an entire week of this series expanding on that exact tension, okay? But what's happening in that dynamic is that the truth God is good, gets distorted to mean God couldn't allow bad things. And what we don't realize is we end up being controlled by something that's not really all the way true. It's a half truth. What we need in these moments is more information, more information that will help us understand the issues. And then I think there's one last source that we often go to for our God view, and it's not a good one, and it's childhood answers to grown-up questions. Childhood answers to grown-up questions. We reach back into what we were told as children. We reach back for that information as something for evidence for us for what we should believe as adults. And this is obviously like a way bigger deal for people who grew up in church. And then somewhere along the line, they start reading different books than they've ever read before. Or maybe they have a, like a literature prof who kind of blows their mind with a view of the Bible that they've never considered. Or maybe they end up having a biology prof who introduces some new discovery that kind of shakes their entire foundation of what they think. And suddenly, what they learned in Sunday school seems like, like what you would tell a kid to make them feel good, not like evidence for a deity, right? And I just want to say, that situation in and of itself, that is not a problem. I actually think it's very good for us, for any person, Christians in particular, to come up against challenges of what we believe to be true. I think that's a really good thing for us. The problem comes when we assume that the answers that we got as children were the whole story. <laughs> and so we end up assuming that it's our God who is lacking, rather than thinking that perhaps the information I got as a child was insufficient. Because let's be honest, <laughs> this is not your Sunday school teacher's fault. It's just not. I'm not hating on people who teach children the Bible in a way that they can understand. In fact, I'm incredibly grateful for it as someone with children. And I'll also say, this is something that everybody does with kids in every circumstance, okay? If your three-year-old comes to you and asks, where do babies come from? Please don't lead with an anatomy lesson, okay? That's not a good idea. And I think that you should be very thankful that whatever wonderful doctor was responsible for bringing that little three-year-old into the world back in that hospital, be very thankful that at some point in their life, they got a much more thorough explanation for where babies come from than it's what happens when two people love each other very much, right? I mean, we do this with kids. The answer you got as a three-year-old and the answer you gave to your three-year-old about this topic, it's not a lie. It is an age-appropriate truth. Your teacher at church was doing the same thing for you when you were a kid. 
It doesn't mean that there aren't more thorough answers out there. So we can't allow the things that we were told as children, which, by the way, were intentionally overly simplistic. We can't allow them to be the foundation that we build our entire view of God on. They will not stand up to the rigors of life as an adult in our world, especially the post-internet boom world. It's just not going to work. So just think about this for a second. If these are the four sources of information that we have about God that we go to all the time to build our God view, why are we surprised that our God view sometimes looks like a kindergarten art project? Why are we surprised? We've been slapping this thing together since we still believed in Santa Claus and we haven't stopped to evaluate the methods. So I guess, let me ask you this. What kind of God do you end up with if this is all you're working with? What kind of God would it look like? Would you expect God to look anything like reality if these are your materials? It would, it would be like this. Let's say we've got a room full of just three-year-olds, which somewhere across all of our campuses, there's a room just like that. So it's not that hard to imagine, okay? Some of you are just in it. Um, so let's say there's a room full of three-year-olds. Let's say we were to go into that room of three-year-olds and give each and every one of them the, the starting of a Mr. Potato Head, okay? And we were to tell them that unlimited snacks and unrestricted free time will be theirs for whoever can build the most perfect Mr. or Mrs. Potato Head, okay? This is very exciting, okay? All they want is some goldfish. They're real stoked about this. And so you give them, oh, but instead of giving them a full set, you only give them a single arm, some angry eyes, a nose, and a tongue, okay? So we've only got four ingredients. And then you say, ready, set, go, unlimited screen time and goldfish. Here we go, let's go. Let's see what you can do. And you start the timer, and these kids start working on it. What do you think they're gonna do? Imagine these poor kids who all they want in the world is some snacks. They're gonna start feverishly putting them together, but we've already established they don't know anything about anatomy from earlier. So they're gonna start putting this thing together to the best of their knowledge, and oh my goodness, here's a nose over here on the side. I don't know where the angry eyes go. Let's put them right here. And then the tongue, uh, it kinda looks like an ear. Let's put it over there. And they're like, ta-da! Does this look anything like a real Mr. Potato Head? We know the perfect spud that this thing is, right? This is not what it's supposed to look like. Now, it actually looks like every Mr. Potato Head I've ever seen, right? Because <laughs> nobody ever had all the pieces because this little holder was always worthless. It was never, never, it was always worthless. So you never had all the pieces. But do they have any chance of making a perfect Mr. Potato Head? No, they don't. Because this terrible social experiment was doomed from the moment it started because they didn't have the right materials. No combination that they can come up with will even slightly resemble the right version. Is it because they're not trying hard enough? No, it's because they don't have the right materials. It's because of what they had to work with. So we would not be surprised when their final product looks, you know, like a science experiment gone wrong. Nobody would be surprised by that end game. And yet this is exactly what we do with our view of God. We pull from these seemingly random sources to piece something together and our combinations get more and more bizarre as our life goes on. And the sad part is, just like these kids, we have no clue that the process we have begun was doomed to fail from the start. We never had the right components and so what happens is that bad information leads to wrong conclusions. Bad information leads to wrong conclusions. As we keep going back and back and back and back to these sources of misinformation, we create a cycle of incorrect conclusions about who God is. 
But since this process of building a God view is so far off our radar and unconscious, we don't even know it's happening. And so without knowing it, we create versions of God that are wildly inaccurate, and we just continue on with our lives, not realizing the chaos that these fake gods are creating in our lives. In fact, I want to give you six fake gods that we tend to create through this process. And these are called the gods of the New Testament. Because you're not finding these anywhere in the Bible or anywhere else, we have made these up. And these are ripped directly out of a series of messages from Andy Stanley, who is a pastor in Atlanta, um, that we love and learn a lot from. And we use some of his materials in our starting point environments across all of our campuses. And I saw those, and it was just it felt like such a perfect thing, I had to rip it right out of there. So he gets all the credit here. Um, but the gods of the New Testament, the first one that I think is so true is we create this version of God. The first one is bodyguard God, bodyguard God. This is where we believe that God's existence is centered around keeping us safe and healthy at all times. And you might believe in bodyguard God if the majority of your prayers are for the safety of your children or for your safety and for all the traveling mercies for your next extended car trip. Okay, if this is all we pray about, you might believe in bodyguard God. But if God is supposed to be a bodyguard, I'm just going to say, he's not a very good one, right? Like if God's whole job was to keep Christians safe, he should be fired. He's terrible at it. And that's because this picture of God isn't real. He doesn't exist. We made him up. He is a skewed picture randomly put together from bad materials, Here's another one, on-demand God, on-demand God. This is where we believe that like Netflix or your teenager, God exists to bring you the things that you want when you want them. You're only laughing if you don't have teenagers. <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> um, but this is especially true of on-demand God, especially when you're making selfless requests. Okay, you're like, look, this is reasonable. I'm not asking for a big screen TV. I'm asking for selfless, reasonable things. And we think to ourselves, if I were God, and someone came to me with this kind of reasonable selfless request, I would most assuredly grant it unto them. And so, as a result of this, this is how God must operate. He might as well be a genie, because that's what he's out here doing. He's granting wishes. But here's the thing. That is not who God is. We made that up. <laughs> that is fake. We created that version of God. Here's another one. Boyfriend God. Boyfriend God, it could be girlfriend God, whatever. Boyfriend God, girlfriend God. This is when we believe <laughs> that it is important that we are always able to just feel God's presence with us at all times, where we just should be overflowing with love and emotion and full of gratitude and admiration and just how close he feels to us. But let me ask you, how often is that actually true? I mean, even if you are all in, if you are sold out for following God, how often can you just feel his presence, right? Not very often, in fact, sometimes this probably happens to you like during singing time where like somebody is next to you and then, man, they're just like feeling the presence of God and you're like, I am not feeling whatever they're feeling. <laughs> like there's something, but I ain't got it. And so like, is God that small? Like he's there, but he's not here. Like, what, why don't I feel his presence? Let me ask you, why do you think you should feel God's presence? What led you to that conclusion? We made it up. That's not who God is. That's not real. That is fake. That is an aberration that we made up with bad ingredients. So what else? The fourth one, anti-science God, anti-science God. And I think this one, man, this is huge in our world. 
This is when we believe that God is someone who's intimidated by science and scientific advancement, that he is opposed to the progress of our knowledge. And if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to have to leave that scientific curiosity at the door. Why is that? Well, because anti-science God can't be having all that science up in here. He's got to have faith, right? But that's not true about God at all. God is all about scientific discovery. He's not scared of it. He invented it, okay? He, he's not, this is totally made up about God. He is not anti-science at all. And the next one that we sometimes believe in is the gap God, the gap God. In this version of God, people see every coincidence in their life and they see God is at work. It's like when that, man, that parking spot opens up right at the front of Wegmans. You're like, mm, the Lord is real. <laughs> you know? Or like when your team makes it to the Super Bowl, you're like, hallelujah, you know? Or even better, when you finally make it into Wegmans and they give you the last plastic bag that they have. <laughs> May his name be praised in this place. You know what I mean? Every gap is filled with God immediately. And look, I'm not saying that God isn't in control of the little stuff in your life. Sure, he is. And that's true. But is that really the essence of who he is and how he reveals his character? I mean, if we just insert God did it into every gap in our scientific knowledge to this day, isn't that a bad thing? Like, wouldn't that be a crutch that would prevent us from making scientific progress in areas where we could know more? But whatever disease is, you know, in the, the person that you love most in the world or that is struggling with something like that, whatever disease, wouldn't you like to know that someday we could overcome that? Like, don't just put God did that there. What if we could find a cure? We would want that, right? But the gap God says, well, hey, you know, that's just how it is. We, why would we do that? That's not how God is. We made that up. Well, here's the final one. And this is going to hit closer to home for some people. This one's called the guilt God the guilt God. This is the version of God that is indignant. He's overly picky. He's honestly kind of grumpy. He's kind of like an old man in the sky, constantly just checking the ledger of our life for discrepancies. So he can just zap us. This version of God hates everything in your world that's fun. He's trying to stomp out every glimmer of goodness, trying to make you feel as bad as you possibly can for all the mistakes that you've ever made. This God he doesn't exist. We made it up. But yet we live like he's real. We've created this and we think it reflects reality. And I think a lot of these feel pretty real. I don't know where you're coming from in terms of life and what you believe about God or even if you believe in him at all, but we've all believed in various versions of these gods of the New Testament. You might have walked into one of our campuses today believing in one of them, thinking that that's all there is. But these are ultimately just wrong conclusions based on bad information, bad ingredients. But the sad thing is the process doesn't stop there. We don't just build a wrong God view and then just keep chugging along with our life, humming along, no problems. No, this process, it produces results. I mean, those results are not good. What happens after all of this is that people give up on God. People give up on God. That's the result. And look, I'm not sure I even need to prove this because we've all seen this, but it's happening to the tune of millions of people in our country right now. Whether it's, you know, the phenomenon called the, the new atheism, which is just kind of a movement of writers and thinkers um, who aren't just saying that they don't believe in God. They're saying that religion is actually a problem that needs to be exterminated from our society. 
or um, the rise of the nuns. Maybe you've seen articles about this. It's, it gets talked a lot about um, the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. Um, these are the religiously unaffiliated. It's people in our culture who, when they're asked on a survey what religious group they identify with, they check the box, none of the above, okay? And what's interesting is that, it, is, that is actually the fastest growing religious group in America, but it's not a formal religion. It's just a group of people who check none of the above, And that's because they might believe in God, they might even be super spiritual, but they've left the idea of religious belief and a religious affiliation behind. But then there's another group I think that's walking away, and this one's a lot more subtle. And this is defeated or disillusioned Christians. They haven't walked away formally yet, no, but they've disengaged. They can't quite bring themselves to just abandon faith entirely, so they continue to wear the label of Christian and they go to church, and they, I mean, they might even give and serve. They look the part, but they're basically always disappointed in God, and they're definitely not convinced that he's worth their entire life and existence. No way. And I'm sure that we've got people from all of those categories with us today across our campuses, people who have given up on God. And honestly, that makes perfect sense. It really does. Because I'm sure that's exactly what I would do if I were in your shoes. If I'd seen what you'd seen, if I've experienced what you've experienced, I'd do the same thing. I would make the same choice you have. But many of those people who have walked away, understandably so, they have walked away from what was ultimately one of the gods of the New Testament. People are abandoning a God that has never existed. They're abandoning a God that never existed. And I just want to be clear with you today. All those gods we talked about, they are worth unfollowing. Okay? Stop following them. That was a good call. You should walk away from them. There are people with us today who at some point in their life, they no longer claim to believe in God because they kind of gave up on guilt God or gap God or anti-science God because they just couldn't take it anymore. And we've got Christians in our environments that should follow their example and stop believing in these fake gods because they are not real. So they absolutely should be abandoned like immediately. But I want to be super clear about this as well. Walking away from those gods is not the same thing as walking away from the true God. Because walking away from a God of the New Testament is just walking away from a God that only ever existed in your head. It's like walking away from this like freakish variation on Mr. Potato Head. These gods aren't real. It doesn't mean, it does not mean that there isn't a God who is real, and who wants to be known. The true God is nothing like the versions that we've created. Nothing. He's so much more. And so who is the real God? What's he like? If I'm not supposed to build my view of God on these bad sources of information, how do I do it right? And honestly, I think the answer is pretty simple. It's not easy but it's simple. And the answer is this, let God speak for himself. Let God speak for himself. Let him reveal himself as himself on his own terms. 
If, if you're going to evaluate, you know, in this stage of your life whether or not you're going to believe in God, I encourage that. Please do. But do not build a straw man and then get disappointed when it doesn't fulfill your expectations and you don't like the way that it operates. Let God speak for himself. And go on the journey of figuring out where those conclusions that God has revealed, where do those conclusions lead you? And that is what this series, the next month, is all about. It will be an opportunity for God to speak to, for himself to us from his word. And here is an amazing, uh, frankly, it's a stunning promise from God, from his word. It says in James chapter 4, come near to God and he will come near to you. Think about that for a second. Think about what a kind of an invitation that is. Come near to God and he will come near to you. As you lean in, as we take out our headphones and put down our phones and get on the edge of our seats and lean in to God, he will come near to us. We can hear from him. He has promised he will come close to us. It's not this. It's not some nonsense. The real God will draw near to you. So what should we do with what we've heard today? How should this lead us to think as we prepare for the next month at our church? First of all, I think we need to take this step, and that is to evaluate the source of your God view. Evaluate the source of your God view. Like I said earlier, most of us arrive at our view of God pretty much unconsciously and mostly accidentally. So take some time this week, kind of ideally before your group even meets this week. Take a moment. I don't know, if you're like me, I probably got to get quiet maybe like with a journal or I don't know how you do this. Maybe you got to go on a run or chop some wood. I don't know what people do, but like think and think, how did I get here? Where, where did I get this information? Am I getting this secondhand? Am I allowing my childhood explanations to suffice in this grown up world? See if you can put your finger on the invisible process that has led you to your conclusions about God. Because man, that's like, that's the diagnosing process. That's, that's vital. We can't, we can't undo until we know where it's coming from. Ask if perhaps your view of God is being limited by these bad sources of information and see if you can start to detox them. How do I undo the work that has been going on in my God view? Where did you get it? And then second of all, the second question, is, I, I guess the, the, the thought there is, are you letting God speak for himself? That's the first question. Are you letting God speak for himself? And then we need to evaluate the results of your God view. We need to evaluate the source. Are you letting God speak for himself? And then evaluate the results of your God view. If the first question is, hey, where'd you get that? The next question is, how's that going for you? How's that going for you? Are you constantly frustrated with God? Are you constantly underwhelmed at his ability to protect you? Or are you constantly overwhelmed with how he's just guilt-inducing and staring down at your life? Are you constantly chasing this feeling that he is close to you in some way? Can you trust God with your hardest things, with your most vulnerable places? Did you give up on God a long time ago? How's that going? How's that going? This series is designed to help all of us fix our broken God view. I don't care how long you've been following God. You've got components of your view of God, me included, that came from a bad source, that came from my childhood, that came from some person who told me something, that came from my experience. 
how's that going? I hope that as you begin to piece together where you got your view, and you begin to notice how it's shaping your life, that it will make you hungry to hear from God himself. Because here's the thing. As we do this together for the next month, we can cling to and find out the truth of the promise that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And if there's one thing you can be confident is true of our God, it's that he keeps his promises. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you, and um, we love you for who you are. And as I say that, I guess I'm realizing that I think we love you for who you are. <laughs> we might love a version of you that we've gotten comfortable with. We might like the version, we might love the version of you that helps us sleep at night. But I pray that you would help undo that this next month. That what we would come to love about you is that you loved us first. And that even when we can't see you at work in our lives, you were always working. And even when we can't feel you at work in our life, you've always been working because you didn't need us. You weren't waiting for us. You weren't hoping we would clue in somehow so you could continue to do your thing. You've always been working and loving us first, chasing us down as your enemies and making us family. Man, God, I pray that we'd love you for that. And then start from square one and let you speak for yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.